0: Support for more information. Tonight, I continue the story, The Wind in the Willows. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Continuing Chapter 8, Toad's Adventures they had many interesting talks together after that, as the dreary days went on, and the jailer's daughter grew very sorry for Toad, and thought it a great shame that a poor little animal should be locked up in prison, what seemed to her a very trivial offence. Toad, of course, in his vanity, thought that her interest in him proceeded from a growing tenderness, and he could not help half regretting that the social gulf between them was so very wide, for she was a comely lass, and evidently admired him very much. One morning the girl was very thoughtful, and answered at random, and did not seem to Toad to be paying proper attention to his witty sayings and sparkling comments. Toad, she said presently, just listen, please. I have an aunt who is a washerwoman. There, there, said Toad, graciously and affably. Never mind, think no more about it. I have several aunts who ought to be washerwomen. Do be quiet a minute, Toad, said the girl. You talk too much. That's your chief fault. And I'm trying to think, and you hurt my head. As I said, I have an aunt who is a washerwoman. She does the washing for all the prisoners in this castle. We try to keep any paying business of that sort in the family, you understand. She takes out the washing on Monday morning and brings it in on Friday evening. This is a Thursday. Now, this is what occurs to me. You're very rich, at least you're always telling me so, and she's very poor. A few pounds wouldn't make any difference to you, and it would mean a lot to her. Now, I think if she were properly approached, squared, I believe is the word you animals use, you could come to some arrangement by which she would let you have her dress and bonnet and so on, and you could escape from the castle as the official washerwoman. You're very alike in many respects, particularly about the figure we're not, said the toad in a huff. I have a very elegant figure, for what I am. So has my aunt, replied the girl, for what she is. But have it your own way, you horrid, proud, ungrateful animal, when I'm sorry for you and trying to help you. Yes, yes, that's all right. Thank you very much indeed, said the toad hurriedly. But look here, you wouldn't surely have Mr. Toad of Toad Hall going about the country, disguised as a washerwoman. Then you can stop here as a toad, replied the girl with much spirit. I suppose you want to go off in a coach and four. Honest toad was always ready to admit himself in the wrong. You're a good, kind, clever girl, he said, and I'm indeed a proud and a stupid toad. Introduce me to your worthy aunt, if you'll be so kind. And I have no doubt that the excellent lady and I would be able to arrange terms satisfactory to both parties next evening. The girl ushered her aunt into Toad's cell, bearing his week's washing pinned up in a towel. The old lady had prepared beforehand for the interview, and the sight of certain gold sovereigns that Toad had thoughtfully placed on the table in full view practically completed the matter and left a little further to discuss in return for his cash. Toad received a cotton print gown, an apron, a shawl, and a rusty black bonnet. The only stipulation the old lady made being that she should be gagged and bound and dumped down in a corner. By this not very convincing artifice, she explained, aided by picturesque fiction, for she could supply herself, she hoped to retain her situation in spite of the suspicious appearance of things. Toad was delighted with the suggestion. It would enable him to leave the prison in some style, and with his reputation for being a desperate and dangerous fellow untarnished. And he readily helped the jailer's daughter to make her aunt appear as much as possible the victim of circumstances over which she had no control. Now it's your turn, Toad, said the girl. Take off that coat and waistcoat of yours, you're fat enough as it is. Shaking with laughter, she proceeded to hook and eye him into the cotton print gown. Arranged the shawl with professional fold, and tied the strings of the rusty bonnet under his chin. You're the very image of her, she giggled. Only I'm sure you never looked half so respectable in all your life before. Now, goodbye, Toad, and good luck. Go straight down the way you came up, and if anyone says anything to you, as they probably will, being but men, you can chaff back a bit, of course. But remember you're a widow woman, quite alone in the world with a character to lose. With a quaking heart, but as firm a footstep as he could command, Toad set forth cautiously on what seemed to be a most hare-brained and hazardous undertaking. But he was soon agreeably surprised to find how easy everything was made for him, and a little humbled at the thought that both his popularity and the sex that seemed to inspire it were really another's. The washerwoman's squat figure in its familiar cotton print seemed a passport for every barred door and grim gateway. Even when he hesitated, uncertain as to the right turning to take, he found himself helped out of his difficulty by the warder at the next gate, anxious to be off to his tea, summoning him to come along sharp and not keep him waiting there all night. The chaff and the humorous sallies to which he was subjected, and to which, of course, he had to provide prompt and effective reply, formed indeed his chief danger for Toad was an animal with a strong sense of his own dignity, and the chaff was mostly, he thought, poor and clumsy, and the humour of the Sallies entirely lacking. However, he kept his temper, though with great difficulty, suited his retorts to his company and his supposed character, and it is best not to overstep the limits of good taste. It seemed hours before he crossed the last courtyard, rejected the pressing invitations from the last guardroom, and dodged the outspread arms of the last warder, pleading with simulated passion for just one farewell embrace. But at last, he heard the wicked gate and the great outer door click behind him, felt the fresh air of the outer world upon his anxious brow, and knew that he was free. Dizzy with the easy success of his daring exploit, he walked quickly towards the lights of the town, not knowing in the least what he should do next, only quite certain of one thing, that he must remove himself as quickly as possible from the neighbourhood where the lady he was forced to represent was so well-known and so popular a character. As he walked along, considering, his attention was caught by some red and green lights a little way off to one side of the town, and the sound of the puffing and snorting of engines and the banging of shunted trucks fell on his ear. Aha, he thought, this is a piece of luck. A railway station is the thing I want most in the whole world at this moment, and what's more, I needn't go through the town to get it, and shan't have to support this humiliating character by repartees which, though thoroughly effective, do not assist one's sense of self-respect. He made his way to the station accordingly, consulted a timetable, and found that a train, bound more or less in the direction of his home, was due to start in half an hour. More luck, said Toad, his spirits rising rapidly, and went off to the booking office to buy his ticket. He gave the name of the station that he knew to be nearest to the village of which Toad Hall was the principal feature, and mechanically put his fingers, in search of the necessary money, where his waistcoat pocket should have been. But here, the cotton gown, which had nobly stood by him so far, and which he had basely forgotten, intervened and frustrated his efforts. In a sort of nightmare, he struggled with the strange, uncanny thing that seemed to hold his hands, turn all muscular strivings to water, and laugh at him all the time, while other travellers, forming up in a line behind, waited with impatience, making suggestions of more or less value and comments of more or less stringency and point. At last, somehow, he never rightly understood how. He burst the barriers, attained the goal, Arrived where all waistcoat pockets are eternally situated, and found not only no money, but no pocket to hold it, and no waistcoat to hold the pocket. To his horror, he recollected that he had left both coat and waistcoat behind him in his cell, and with them his pocketbook, money, keys, watch, matches, pencil case, all that makes life worth living, all that distinguishes the many pocketed animal, the lord of creation from the inferior one-pocketed or no-pocketed productions that hop or trip about permissively, unequipped for the real contest. In his misery, he made one desperate effort to carry the thing off, and with a return to his fine old manner, a blend of the squire and the college dawn, he said, Look here. I find I've left my purse behind. Just give me that ticket, will you, and I'll send the money on tomorrow. I'm well known in these parts. The clerk stared at him and the rusty black bonnet a moment and then laughed. "'I should think you were pretty well known in these parts,' he said, "'if you've tried this game on often. "'Here, stand away from the window, please, madam. "'You're obstructing the other passengers.' An old gentleman, who'd been prodding him in the back for some moments, "'here, thrust him away, and what was worse, addressed him as his good woman, "'which angered Toad more than anything that had occurred that evening.' Baffled and full of despair, he wandered blindly down the platform where the train was standing, and tears trickled down each side of his nose. It was hard, he thought, to be within sight of safety and almost of home, and to be balked by the want of a few wretched shillings and by the pettifogging mistrustfulness of paid officials. Very soon his escape would be discovered, the hunt would be up, he would be caught, reviled, loaded with chains, dragged back to prison and bread and water and straw. His guards and penalties would be doubled. And oh, what sarcastic remarks the girl would make. What was to be done? He was not swift of foot. His figure was unfortunately recognizable. Could he not squeeze under the seat of a carriage? he had seen this method adopted by schoolboys when the journey money provided by thoughtful parents had been diverted to other and better ends. As he pondered, he found himself opposite the engine, which was being oiled, wiped, and generally caressed by its affectionate driver, a burly man with an oil can in one hand and a lump of cotton waste in the other. Hello, mother, said the engine driver. What's the trouble? You don't look particularly cheerful. Oh, sir, said Toad, crying afresh. I'm a poor, unhappy washerwoman, and I've lost all my money and can't pay for a ticket, and I must get home tonight somehow. Whatever I'm to do, I don't know. Oh, dear, oh, dare. That's a bad business indeed, said the engine driver reflectively. Lost your money and can't get home. And got some kids too waiting for you, I dare say. Any amount of them, sobbed Toad. And they'll be hungry and playing with matches and upsetting lamps, and the little innocents, and quarrelling and going on generally. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do, said the good engine driver. You're a washerwoman to your trade, says you. Very well, that's that. And I'm an engine driver, as you may well see. And there's no denying it's terribly dirty work. Uses up a power of shirts it does, till my missus is fair tired of washing them. If you'll wash a few shirts for me when you get home, and send them along, I'll give you a ride on my engine. It's against the company's regulations, but we're not so very particular in these out-of-the-way parts. The toad's misery turned into rapture as he eagerly scrambled up into the cab of the engine. Of course, he had never washed a shirt in his life, and couldn't if he tried. And anyhow, he wasn't going to begin. But, he thought, when I get safely home to Toad Hall and have money again, and pockets to put it in, I will send the engine driver enough to pay for quite a quantity of washing, and that will be the same thing, or better. The guard waved his welcome flag. The engine driver whistled in cheerful response and the train moved out at the station. As the speed increased, and the toad could see on either side of him real fields and trees and hedges and cows and horses, all flying past him, and as he thought of how every minute was bringing him nearer to toad hall and sympathetic friends and money to clink in his pocket and a soft bed to sleep in and good things to eat and praise and admiration at the recital of his adventures and his surpassing cleverness, He began to skip up and down and shout and sing snatches of a song, to the great astonishment of the engine driver, who had come across washerwomen before at long intervals, but never one at all like this. They had covered many and many a mile, and Toad was already considering what he would have for supper as soon as he got home, when he noticed that the engine driver, with a puzzled expression on his face, was leaning over the side of the engine and listening hard. Then he saw him climb onto the coals and gaze out over the top of the train. Then he returned and said to Toad, It's very strange. We're the last train running in this direction tonight. Yet I could be sworn that I heard another following us. Toad ceased his frivolous antics at once. He became grave and depressed, and a dull pain in the lower part of his spine, communicating itself to his legs, made him want to sit down and try desperately not to think of all the possibilities. By this time, the moon was shining brightly, and the engine driver, steadying himself on the coal, could command a view of the line behind them for a long distance. Presently, he called out, I can see it clearly now. It is an engine on our rails, coming along at a great pace. It looks as if we're being pursued. The miserable toad, crouching in the coal dust, tried hard to think of something to do, with dismal want of success. They're gaining on us fast, cried the engine driver and the engine is crowded with the strangest lot of people. Men like ancient warders, waving halberds, policemen in their helmets, waving truncheons, and shabbily dressed men in pot hats, obvious and unmistakable plain-clothed detectives even at this distance, waving revolvers and walking sticks, all waving and all shouting the same thing, stop, stop, stop. Then Toad fell on his knees among the coals, and raising his clasped paws in supplication, cried, Save me. Only save me, dear kind engine driver, and I will confess everything. I am not the simple washerwoman I seem to be. I have no children waiting for me, innocent or otherwise. I am a toad. A well-known and popular Mr. Toad, a landed proprietor. I have just escaped by my great daring and cleverness from a loathsome dungeon into which my enemies had flung me. And if those fellows on that engine recapture me, It would be chains and bread and water and straw and misery once more for poor, unhappy, innocent Toad. The engine driver looked down upon him very sternly and said, Now tell the truth. What were you put in prison for? It was nothing very much, said poor Toad, colouring deeply. I only borrowed a motor car while the owners were at lunch. They had no need of it at the time. I didn't mean to steal it, really. But people especially magistrates, take such harsh views of thoughtless and high-spirited actions. The engine driver looked very grave and said, I fear that you have been indeed a wicked toad, and by rights I ought to give you up to offended justice. But you are evidently in sore trouble and distress, so I will not desert you. I don't hold with motor cars for one thing, and I don't hold with being ordered about by policemen when I'm on my engine for another. And the sight of an animal in tears... Always makes me feel strange and soft hearted. So cheer up, Toad. I'll do my best, and we may beat them yet. They piled on more coals, shoveling furiously. The furnace roared, the sparks flew, the engine leapt and swung, but still their pursuers slowly gained. The engine driver, with a sigh, wiped his brow with a handful of cotton waste and said, I'm afraid it's no good, Toad. You see, they're running light and they have the better engine. There's just one thing left for us to do, and it's your only chance, so attend very carefully to what I tell you. A short way ahead of us is a long tunnel, and on the other side of that the line passes through a thick wood. Now, I will put on all the speed I can while we are running through the tunnel, but the other fellows will slow down a bit naturally for fear of an accident. When we are through, I will shut off steam and put on brakes as hard as I can, and the moment it's safe to do so, you must jump and hide in the wood before they get through the tunnel and see you. Then I will go full speed ahead again, and they can chase me if they like, for as long as they like, and as far as they like. Now mind, and be ready to jump when I tell you. They piled on the coals, and the train shot into the tunnel, and the engine rushed and roared and rattled, till at last they shot out at the other end into fresh air and the peaceful moonlight and saw the wood lying dark and helpful upon either side of the line. The driver shut off steam and put on brakes. The toad got down on the step, and as the train slowed down to almost a walking pace, he heard the driver call out, Now, jump! Toad jumped, rolled down a short embankment, picked himself up unhurt, scrambled into the wood, and hid. Peeping out, he saw his train get up speed again and disappear at a great pace. And out of the tunnel burst the pursuing engine, roaring and whistling. Her motley crew waving their various weapons and shouting, "Stop! Stop! Stop!" When they were past, the toad had a hearty laugh, for the first time since he was thrown into prison. But he soon stopped laughing when he came to consider that it was now very late and dark and cold, and he was in an unknown wood, with no money, and no chance of supper, and still far from friends and home and the dead silence of everything, after the roar and rattle of the train, was something of a shock. He did not leave the shelter of the trees, so he struck into the wood with the idea of leaving the railway as far as possible behind him. After so many weeks within walls, he found the wood strange and unfriendly, and inclined, he thought, to make fun of him. Nightjars, sounding their mechanical rattle, made him think that the wood was full of searching warders closing in on him. An owl, swooping noiselessly towards him, brushed his shoulder with its wing, making him jump with the horrid certainty that it was a hand, then flitted off, moth-like, laughing low, which Toad thought in very poor taste. Once he met a fox, who stopped, looked him up and down in a sarcastic sort of way, and said, Hello, washerwoman. Half a pair of socks and a pill-case short this week, mind it doesn't occur again, and swaggered off, slingering. Toad looked about for a stone to throw at him, but could not succeed in finding one, which vexed him more than anything. At last, cold, hungry, and tired out, he sought the shelter of a hollow tree, where, with branches and dead leaves, he made himself as comfortable a bed as he could, and slept soundly till the morning. Chapter 9 Wayfarers All the water rat was restless, and he did not exactly know why. To all appearance, the summer's pomp was still at fullest height, and although in the tilled acres green had given way to gold, though ruins were reddening, and the woods were dashed here and there with a tawny fierceness, yet light and warmth and colour was still present in undiminished measure, clean of any chilly premonitions of the passing year. But the constant chorus of the orchards and hedges had shrunk to a casual evening song from a few yet unwearied performers. The robin was beginning to assert himself once more, and there was a feeling in the air of change and departure. The cuckoo, of course, had long been silent, but many another feathered friend, for months a part of the familiar landscape and its small society, was missing too, and it seemed that the ranks thinned steadily day by day. Rat, ever observant of all-winged movement, saw that it was taking daily a southing tendency, and even as he lay in bed at night, he thought he could make out, passing in the darkness overhead, the beat and quiver of impatient pinions, obedient to the peremptory call. Nature's grand hotel has its season like the others. As the guests, one by one, pack, pay, and depart, and the seats of the table d'hote shrink pitifully at each succeeding meal. As suites of rooms are closed, carpets taken up, and waiters sent away, those boarders who are staying on en pension, until the next year's full reopening, cannot help being somewhat affected by all these flittings and farewells, this eager discussion of plans, routes, and fresh quarters, this daily shrinkage in the stream of comradeship. One gets unsettled, depressed, and inclined to be querulous. Why this craving for change? Why not sit on quietly here like us and be jolly? You don't know this hotel out of the season, and what fun we may have among ourselves, we fellows who remain and see the whole interesting year out. All very true, no doubt, the others always reply. We quite envy you. And some other year, perhaps. But just now we have engagements, and there's the bus at the door. Our time is up so they depart with a smile and a nod, and we miss them and feel resentful. The rat was a self-sufficing sort of animal, rooted to the land. And, whoever went, he stayed. Still, he could not help noticing what was in the air and feeling some of its influence in his bones. It was difficult to settle down to anything seriously with all this flitting going on. Leaving the waterside, where rushes stood thick and tall in a stream that was becoming sluggish and low. He wandered countrywards, crossed a field or two of pasturage, already looking dusty and parched, and thrust into the great sea of wheat, yellow, wavy and murmurous, full of quiet motion and small whisperings. Here he often loved to wander, through the forest of stiff, strong stalks that carried their own golden sky away over his head, a sky that was always dancing, shimmering, softly talking or swaying strongly to the passing wind, and recovering itself with a toss and a merry laugh. Here, too, he had many small friends, a society complete in itself, leading full and busy lives, but always with a spare moment to gossip, and exchange news with a visitor. Today, however, though they were civil enough, the field mice and harvest mice seemed preoccupied. Many were digging and tunneling busily, others gathered together in small groups, Examined plans and drawings of small flats, stated to be desirable and compact, and situated conveniently near the stores. Some were hauling out dusty trunks and dress baskets, others were already elbow-deep packing their belongings, while everywhere piles and bundles of wheat, oats, barley, beechmast, mast and nuts lay about, ready for transport. Here's old ratty, they cried as soon as they saw him. Come and bear a hand, rat and don't stand about idle what sort of games are you up to said the water rat severely you know it isn't time to be thinking of winter quarters yet by a long way oh yes we know that explained the field mouse rather shamefacedly but it's always as well to be in good time isn't it we really must get all the furniture and baggage and stores moved out of this before those horrid machines begin clicking around the fields and then you know the best flats get picked up so quickly nowadays And if you're late, you have to put up with anything. And they want such a lot of doing up, too, before they're fit to move into. Of course, we're early, we know that, but we're only just making a start. Oh, bother starts, said the rat. It's a splendid day. Come for a row, or a stroll along the hedges, or a picnic in the woods, or something. Well, I think not today, thank you, replied the field mouse hurriedly. Perhaps some other day, when we've more time. The rat, with a snort of contempt, swung round to go, tripped over a hatbox and fell with undignified remarks. If people would be more careful, said a field mouse rather stiffly, and look where they're going, people wouldn't hurt themselves and forget themselves. Mind that hold-all, rat. You'd better sit down somewhere. In an hour or two we may be more free to attend to you. You won't be free, as you call it, much this side of Christmas, I can see that retorted the rat grumpily as he picked his way out of the field. He returned somewhat despondently to his river again. His faithful, steady-going old river, which never packed up, flitted, or went into winter quarters. In the osiers which fringed the bank, he spied a swallow sitting. Presently it was joined by another, and then by a third, and the birds, fidgeting restlessly on their bough talked together earnestly and low. What? Already? said the rat, strolling up to them. What's the hurry? I call it simply ridiculous. Oh, we're not off yet, if that's what you mean, replied the first swallow. We're only making plans and arranging things. Talking it over, you know, what route we're taking this year and where we'll stop and so on. That's half the fun. Fun? said the rat. Now that's just what I don't understand. If you've got to leave this pleasant place, and your friends who will miss you, and your snug homes that you've just settled into, why, when the hour strikes, I've no doubt you'll go bravely, and face all the trouble and discomfort and change and newness, and make believe that you're not very unhappy. But to want to talk about it, or even think about it till you really need. No, you don't understand, naturally, said the second swallow. First, we feel it stirring within us a sweet unrest. Then back come the recollections, one by one, like homing pigeons. They flutter through our dreams at night. They fly with us in our wheelings and circlings by day. We hunger to inquire of each other, to compare notes and assure ourselves that it was all really true. As one by one, the scents and sounds and names of long-forgotten places come gradually back and beckon to us. Couldn't you stop on for just this year? suggested the water rat wistfully. We'll all do our best to make you feel at home. You have no idea what good times we have here while you're far away. I tried stopping on one year, said the third swallow. i had grown so fond of the place that, when the time came, I hung back and let the others go on without me. For a few weeks it was all well enough, but afterwards, oh, the weary length of the nights, the shivering sunless days, the air so clammy and chill and not an insect in an acre of it, No, it was no good. My courage broke down, and one cold, stormy night I took wing, flying well inland on account of the strong easterly gales. It was snowing hard as I beat through the passes of the great mountains, and I had a stiff fight to win through. But never shall I forget the blissful feeling of the hot sun again on my back, as I sped down to the lakes that lay so blue and placid below me, and the taste of my first fat insect. The past was like a bad dream. The future was all happy holiday as I moved southwards week by week, easily, lazily, lingering as long as I dared, but always heeding the call. No, I had had my warning. Never again did I think of disobedience. Ah, yes, the call of the South, of the South, twittered the other two dreamily. Its songs, its hues, its radiant hair. Oh, do you remember? and forgetting the rat, they slid into passionate reminiscence, while he listened fascinated, and his heart burned within him. In himself, too, he knew that it was vibrating at last, that chord, hitherto dormant and unsuspected. The mere chatter of these southern-bound birds, their pale and second-hand reports, had yet power to awaken this wild new sensation, and thrill him through and through with it. What would one moment of the real thing work in him? one passionate touch of the real southern sun, one waft of the authentic odour. With closed eyes he dared to dream a moment in full abandonment, and when he looked again the river seemed steely and chill, the green fields grey and lightless. Then his loyal heart seemed to cry out on his weaker self for his treachery. Why do you ever come back then, at all? he demanded, of the swallows jealously. What do you find to attract you in this poor, drab little country? And do you think, said the first swallow, that the other call is not first, too, in its due season? The call of lush meadow grass, wet orchards, warm, insect haunted ponds, of browsing cattle, of haymaking, and all the farm buildings clustering around the house of the perfect eaves? Do you suppose, asked the second one, that you are the only living thing that craves, with a hungry longing, to hear the cuckoo's note again? In due time, said the third, we shall be homesick once more for quiet water lilies swaying on the surface of an English stream. But today, all that seems pale and thin and very far away. Just now our blood dances to another music. They fell a twittering among themselves once more, and this time their intoxicating babble was of violet seas tawny sands, and lizard-haunted walls. Restlessly, the rat wandered off once more, climbed the slope that rose gently from the north bank of the river, and lay looking out towards the great ring of downs that barred his vision further southwards. His simple horizon hitherto, his mountains of the moon, his limit behind which lay nothing he had cared to see or to know. Today, to him, to him, Gazing south with a new-born need stirring in his heart, the clear sky over their long, low outline seemed to pulsate with promise. Today the unseen was everything, the unknown, the only real fact of life. On this side of the hills was now the real blank. On the other lay the crowded and coloured panorama that his inner eye was seeing so clearly. What seas lay beyond, green, leaping and crested? What sun-bathed coasts? along which the white villas glittered against the olive woods. What quiet harbours, thronged with gallant shipping bound for purple islands of wine and spice, islands set so low in languorous waters. He rose and descended riverwards once more, then changed his mind and sought the side of the dusty lane. There, lying half-buried in the thick, cool, under tangle that bordered it, he could muse on the metalled road, and all the wondrous world that it led to, and all the wayfarers, too, that might have trodden it, and the fortunes and adventures they had gone to seek, or found unseeking, out there, beyond. Beyond. Good night.